Revelation chapter 9. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Now, by your spirit who is abundantly here, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see these truths. Today, in particular, Holy Spirit, just an extra measure of grace in such a disconcerting chapter. One of the most strange and difficult to understand and upsetting passages in the Bible today. We need your help, Heavenly Father. Help us to understand and put these truths into practice in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, as you can see on the slide, this photo from space really captures the ominous feeling that people on the East Coast had to deal with uh, knowing that Hurricane Sandy was on the way. Now, it's the strongest tropical storm to hit the East Coast, as all of you know, in, in all of history. Um, I guess there's 109 fatalities and counting, uh, thousands of homes destroyed completely, and hundreds of thousands damaged. Um, just in New York City parks alone, 7,000 trees are down just to give you the impact. Entire industries have been shut down. Um, major international airports underwater, the runways, unable to um, have 15,000 flights go in and out. They were canceled. Seawater pouring into the subways. 2.5 million people this morning still do not have electricity, and some of them without clean water as well. Gasoline shortages, lines miles long. You all have been reading the papers. What a disaster. Our hearts and our prayers go out to them. Thank you for the slide. Um, our Lord Jesus Christ referred to these kinds of natural disasters as birth pangs in Matthew 24. Uh, when he was asked about the signs of the end of the age, uh, birth pangs would be those early stages of labor, just a contraction here and there that just kind of signals, you know what, the inevitable end of this process is coming. And so this is what the Lord spoke of with the rise of natural disasters. But there was indeed a clear distinction between birth pangs and the big bang between storms and the storm called in the Bible the day of the Lord. We've been calling it the great tribulation because in Revelation chapter 7 it is called the great tribulation. Jesus also calls it that when he says from then there will be great uh, distress or tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. We've been talking about, because we are studying, if you're new to uh, The Rock, we've been studying uh, this period of time, the last seven years of human history, God judging an evil, Christ-rejecting world, bringing his kingdom of goodness and peace. And it's been said that it's a time when human history dead ends into its creator. It's a time of judgment and salvation. And... Uh, the storm, the storm of the great tribulation, as we've been seeing, will make Sandy and Katrina 
and all the other storms look like gentle spring showers by comparison. So it's not necessarily a pleasant subject to talk about. I have a quote here from a guy, Ray Stedman, Pastor Ray Stedman, who's gone on to be with the Lord, great Bible teacher. And uh, he did a series on Sunday morning uh, right through Revelation, as we are. And when he got to chapter 9, here's how he opened his sermon. And I quote Pastor Ray Stedman speaking here at where we are, all right? He says, I received an unsigned note in the offering last week, which, which I will read to you exactly as it was written. Quote, kindly see to it that your sermon presentation is more entertaining and concise. Wow. He's still speaking. I am sure the note was sincere and well-intentioned. Probably many of you feel the same way about my messages. I too strongly sympathize with those sentiments. I wish there was some way to make these messages more entertaining. And although I struggled to make them concise, I probably could use some improvement there as well. Uh, but I remind you, Ray's still speaking, that we're dealing with what the Old Testament calls the great and terrible day of the Lord, I find it difficult to make such messages amusing or entertaining. And then he says, it strikes me to attempt it would be something analogous to hiring a comedian to entertain the witnesses at a public execution. I thought that was funny. Actually, this is not entertaining material, I grant you, but it's true, and unpleasant truths sometimes are very necessary to face. So I appreciate this. I mean, who wouldn't rather preach on, uh, you know, John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, be not afraid, believe in God, trust in him, trust in me also. In my Father's house, there are many places for you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you shall be also. I didn't know I knew all of that verse. I could keep on going. I was surprised. I thought I'd just stop where I, you know, stop. But lo and behold, John 14, amen? So if you're visiting uh, this morning for the very first time, uh, welcome. And out of all the Sundays that you could have possibly come in and all the passages as we, as a Calvary Chapel, go verse by verse, you've picked chapter 9, which is a doozy, all right? Uh, I promise you it will be probably the strangest Bible study you've ever heard in a church. And so um, I don't necessarily think strange in a bad way, but strange is different to one's ears all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And the words that begin the prophetic revelation we, found, we find in chapter 1 promises a blessing to anyone who reads and studies these words. And so Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is revealing this advanced history to his church, his people, for a reason and promises a blessing. And so therefore we tackle it and try to, to get as much as we can from it. Shall we reset the scene <clears throat> for, our, uh, for all of us who need to be reminded what's going on? According to our pre-tribulation position, which all that means is that the church 
uh, is removed, the Lord comes for his people pre-tribulation, before the great seven-year period of judgment. Uh, Jesus said it like this, at that time, it'll be business as usual. One will go, one will stay. And we're talking about now a period of time where those who have been left behind must endure the judgments of the Lord. And so um, the helpful outline, oh, I don't know if we have the seals. You can look around and see if you can find them and bring them up while I'm talking about them. The seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls. So really quick, chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation, the crux of Revelation deals with seven years. Those seven years are unfolded to us in three ways, three categories, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now, they are chronological of sorts, but and they're not necessarily sequential. There's a little ebb and flowing, and not everything is an actual judgment. Sometimes you open something up and there's an explanation. There are also pauses in, in, in between these things that give us information and uh, explain things to us. And so uh, the 21 phases, if you want to call them that, are outlined here. We've opened the first six seals and unleashed the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, the white horse, the Antichrist, who brings domination, uh, tries to bring uh, the world into under his domination, the red horse, the global wars, and the black horse, famine, scarcity, economic collapse globally, and the pale horse, a quarter of the earth's population is already perished, 1,500,000,000. The seventh seal was opened, we've already, and we have seen in the seventh seal with seven trumpets, and so it's like what? opening a box and then finding another box inside. The seven trumpets, we've looked at four of them. We're going to pick up this morning at the fifth. Uh, sorry, yeah, at the fifth and sixth, all right? So trumpet number one, a mix of hail and fire destroyed uh, a third of the green vegetation. Trumpet two, uh, what appears to John as a mountain on fire being tossed into the ocean, destroying a third of the marine life, not to mention a third of the merchant ships. Trumpet number three, uh, what appears to John as a flaming torch falls into a third of the rivers and a third of those freshwater springs and rivers become poisoned with something called wormwood and you cannot drink it or you will die. The waters are now, one-third of the earth's waters are now undrinkable. Trumpet number four, which brings us close to where we're picking up. <clears throat> the light of the sun, moon, and stars have been diminished by a third. And so uh, during one-third of daylight would be pitch black, a supernatural black. And one-third of the evening, a supernatural black, a blackness, a darkness that, that could be felt. And so with that, there was the last verse before we dive into the trumpet number five, because we leave off at four, but in between four and five, trumpet four and five, there's an interlude. 
and it's called the woes. And, and an angelic being that resemble, resembles a cherubim or an eagle uh, uh, is soaring through the skies, uh, kind of crying out to the inhabitants of the earth to really brace themselves because the worst is yet to come. And uh, is a cry from God's heart to prepare because it seems that when they prepare, they would be spared from at least the fifth trumpet and the plague that's involved with that. And so four down, three to go. The three to go are nicknamed now the woes because of their severity. So you'll have woe number one, woe number two, and woe number three, but all they are is trumpet five, six, and seven. All right? Are we clear? So now we pick up there. Chapter 9 deals with two of those trumpets, five and six, or two of the woes, if you want to call them woes. So thank you for the slide, Adam. Now the focus shifts from judgment that devastates the earth. The first four trumpets go to the earth, the environment. The next three are focused on human beings. Revelation 9, I think it's important to read the whole thing to get the feel, and then we'll walk our way through it. Buckle your seatbelts. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace, The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the green of the earth or any plant or tree, but only rather those people who did not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth like lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They, They had a king over them and the it was the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon in, I like to to pronounce the names correctly, even though they're not popularly spoken that way. But it's Abaddon in Hebrew and not Abaddon. And in Greek, Apolluan in the Greek. So we'll call them Abaddon. (laughs) We'll call them Abaddon and Apollyon. (laughs) The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Here we go with trumpet six or woe number two. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and heard a voice coming from the horns of the 
golden altar that is before God had said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates. And the four angels who have been kept ready for this very hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. <clears throat> their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. Their heads, the heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons of idols and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can't see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, magic arts, sexual immorality, or of their thefts. Now, I wanted to read the entire chapter because I think the last two verses will give you a great, uh, really, explanation about why these judgments are intensifying, why they are becoming more and more evil and supernatural in nature. And so, by and large, <clears throat> after, uh, really, the unparalleled chaos and suffering of seven seals four horsemen of the apocalypse, and four trumpet judgments, men and women still stubbornly resisting God. It's hard for us to understand. I mean, seriously, most Christians, when, when a relationship goes a little bit sour or the, the checking account dips a bit, little bit low and, or we feel like the Lord is chastising us, you know, I've got a lump here or a bump here, the doctor, uh, we're, we're ready, we're on our knees. So it's very hard, you know, somebody gets a hangnail, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I need to confess. You know, we're, we tend to be confessors, and, and we don't want the chastisement of the Lord. But here's a world falling apart, mountains falling into the heart of the sea, and people are still shaking their fists heavenly, heavenward, I should say. So really, God serves the planet these rebels notice, brace yourselves for the next three. And I think that is the sign of the merciful, unfathomable grace of God that says, I don't want anyone to perish. And it seems reasonable to conclude that if they repent at the sound of the angelic proclamation, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, they would become saved, they would become it's reasonable, sealed, and they would escape the torment of what was coming. So I really see the woes as God saying, you know what? Get ready for this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be rough. It's going to be intense. But I, I hear the heart of God. So chapter two, uh, chapter nine, rather, divides into two halves neatly. 
And so the two trumpets that we've been talking about, essentially most commentators say they look like two armies. One is supernatural. One is natural, inspired by the supernatural. And so we're going to take a look at that. Um, one would be demonized army of depicted uh, really by locusts, verses 1 through 11. And then a gigantic military directed and inspired by de- demonic powers, verses 12 through 21. So let's look at this mysterious and terrifying first group. Uh, chapter 9, Revelation, and verse 1 says, John sees a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Now, lots of talk about falling star imagery here. We've seen it last chapter in verse 10. But this one's different. It's a he. It's a living being. Your text says, when he opened the abyss. So who is this star? Well, there's no need to be dogmatic since the since he's unnamed, but does he really need to be named if you know your Bible? Um, the stars often symbolize literal angels as they did in chapter 1. The seven stars, Jesus said, are, not are like, but are the seven angels. Job 38, the morning stars sang together, And all the angels shouted for joy, but not all the angels stayed together shouting for joy. The Bible says that there are angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. That is in Jude verse 6. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, the dragon's tail, the dragon is Satan himself, knocks over a third of the stars and they fall to the earth. That is where theologians get the understanding that a third of the angelic hosts defected and became followers of the evil one. And so between Isaiah and Jesus' comments, here's Isaiah, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations, Isaiah 14 and verse 12. And then Jesus telling his disciples when they talked about casting demons out, he said, oh man, I see, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Between all of that, I think it's reasonable on top of the Greek tense of the verb, Fallen is in its perfect tense, which signifies completed action. So really in the Greek, it says, I saw an already fallen angel. Hmm. It doesn't make sense in the English, so in the Greek. I think it's safe to assume this is Lucifer, which means brightness, the devil himself. So the abyss. Now, the devil is given the key, and notice he's always given power. He doesn't have random power. His is a limited power under the sovereignty of God. The devil is given the key to the top of something called the abyss, the Greek word abusos. It it means bottomless or boundless. When it's used with another word, friar, it means well or pit. Pit. 
it, it seems that then that many demons are imprisoned in a spiritual penitentiary, uh, the the prison house for demons, I would call this, and it becomes increasingly prominent in the book of Revelation. And this is a place that the demons knew about in Luke chapter, uh, where was it? Chapter 8, where Jesus was casting out demons and legion of them said, do not send us to the deep, King James, the abyss, NIV, to the big boundless hole of darkness where they are chained. Now, the rest of that verse that I said about the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, and then let me finish the verse. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. Well, that great day is here, and it's time for the abyss to be opened and used according to God's plan Incidentally, this is the place from which the Antichrist will be summoned up from after he is assassinated. He will die. He will, his spirit will go to the abyss and he will be raised from the dead by the power of the evil one and the world will marvel at the beast and say, who is like the beast? Because he always wants to imitate God. Death, resurrection, death, resurrection, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He has his trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's, it's a counterfeit kingdom. Now, <clears throat> so permission is granted to this personage to take the lid off the pit and out they come. And uh, many scholars see these invisible demons manifesting physically as locust-type creatures. Uh, now the top comes off, darkness fills the sky, John says, like black acrid smoke billowing out of a gigantic furnace. He's saying, that's what it looked like to me. And now we know the theme of trumpet number five, demonic uh, and satanic oppression. John Phillips on this passage. Imagine what the world would be like if we were to open the doors of all the maximum, maximum security prisons of the earth and set free the world's most vicious and violent criminals, giving them full reign to practice their infamies upon mankind. Now, verses 4 and 6, their mission, these locusts, they are, they are naturally uh, altered because normally locusts go for vegetation, uh, but this swarm's headed exclusively for human beings. The duration is given uh, and it's interesting, a duration of the normal lifespan of the locust. They live from May to September, five months. Their sting is like a scorpion. The sting isn't lethal of a scorpion unless you're a child, uh, but it is one of the most painful bites a human being can ever endure. Uh, verse 6 says that uh, death eludes them. They want to die, but can't. In fact, in the Greek, it says death keeps running from them. Now, for once, the grim reaper's nowhere in sight. Why? Because they're not ready to die. 
These are God's evangelists saying to them, I'd rather you go through this if this is what it's going to take to break you and give you eternal life in paradise, a free ticket out of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth forever upon forever upon forever of darkness and fire. You're not ready to die. Not ready to die. They are, they're still shaking their fists. Perhaps after the five months. And during those five months, you'll, you'll have people confessing to the Lord. But the Lord is willing that none perish and everyone come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So the great tribulation really will make eternal hell look like Disneyland. So, of course, death eludes them because God doesn't want them to go there. You know, why, the, why, why, why is God allowing this? Well, a billion Christians disappeared from the planet. That wasn't enough. He blessed them with peace and he blessed them with blessing and happy days. That didn't do it. And so he brought global war. And he opened all of these seals. Mountains were falling into the sea on fire. A third of the earth is destroyed. <laughs> this is incredible. And still, they're not saved. They say all the way up to chapter 9, verse 1, no. So the Lord says, whoa. <laughs> I've got more woes than you knows. <laughs> All right, so these tormentors are on a mission of mercy. And I don't know about you, and I'm going to say this, and I mean every word of it. I would love to have five months of scorpion stings if it meant that I would live forever in paradise with God. If you told me, look, dude, and Jesus says, what would you give to get out of hell? That's a nice paraphrase of what that will a man give in exchange of his soul. A very good paraphrase of that is what would you have done to keep from going there? I would say if he said five months of scorpions, <laughs> sign me up. I love scorpions. <laughs> you know, I'd be... Oh, I, I, eternal life, five months, God, five months. I, yes, it would be terrible. It would be hell on earth, but then there'd be an end. And I'd be free, and I'd have my eternal body, and I'd be reunited with loved ones, and I would live in the love of God forever and ever and ever. God knows what he's doing with these guys. He does. They're the hardest hearts you've ever met in all of the world. They're the hardest hearts. Verses 7 through 11, uh, we've got their mission down, 1 through 6. Now a few uh, verses to describe their character. Uh, verse 7, they're prepared for battle, so they're focused and purposed. They've got one thing on their mind. And speaking of mind, the face. So the face symbolizes, listen, there's intelligence here. They're just not like grasshoppers on steroids. They, they have a mind. They have, they have cognition. They can take orders. You see, the face, I think, says personage, intelligence behind it, which crowns of gold. 
Listen to how Paul the Apostle describes the spirit world of evil. We wrestle against spiritual rulers and against authorities, crowns of gold, demons, crowns of authority, the powers of this dark world against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Crowns symbolize authority. And just as God's kingdom has authority and a hierarchy, so the counterfeit does as well. Verse 8, hair like women, commentators, something seductive about these demons. They are worshipped. Go to the last verse. They're worshipping. Demons lure people away. And the Bible says, hey, a a woman's hair. Can you uh, turn off the air or turn it down? I see people's faces and they're they're sending out telepathic messages. Dear Ross, shut down the refrigerator. All right. Don't turn the heater on. Yeah, just a little bit off. Thank you. Yeah, it's hot enough in the chapter. (laughs) This should be, this is warming me up right here. All right. So, uh, yeah, a woman's hair is her glory, the scriptures say. And so there's an idea that as sick as it is to think this way, there's an allurement about them. Uh, breastplates of iron, teeth like lions in verse 9. It just means invincible. How, how, are, you gonna, how are human beings going to stop uh, de- a demonic attack without Jesus Christ, without the word of God, without faith? Sorry, Charlie. No way. There's no way to stop them. Wings that thunder, just overwhelming force and power. Verse 10, their sting limited to five months. Verse 11, their king has a name. So he, uh, these demons are equal opportunity tormentors, Jew and Gentile alike, Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. It means destroyer. Now, who could that be? The king of the, the place is called destroyer. Now, Uh, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10. Quite the contrast to why Jesus came as king, to bring life. So verses 12 and 13 serve as transitions. Trumpet 5, done, the first woe, over. So um, now trumpet 6 resounds. Woe number two. So we move away from an army of demonized locusts who have authority only, listen, to harm. We're moving from that to an army of demonized soldiers with the authority to kill. All right, verse 13 is a reminder and a necessary one, I think, that the whole tribulation is indeed an answer to prayer, the prayer of God's people. So the voice that that's keeping these judgments moving is coming from the prayer altar. The horns just mean the corners of those altars, that altar rather, and the whole scene of the tribulation and all of this that you see is in part an answer to the prayers of God's people been praying through the ages, thy kingdom come, 
Part of the answer to thy kingdom come is to uh, judge and deal with wrongdoing and evil and to annihilate that and then bring a kingdom where only righteousness dwells. So the Lord is coming, and that's an answer to prayer, but the great tribulation is indeed in cooperation with the prayers of God's people, not only the last 2,000 years, but all through from the beginning. So here's another way of doing that, of answering the prayers, is trumpet number five. And he orders four angels there who are bound at the river Euphrates to be released. Um, These angels have some stirring up to do. Now let's talk about this because it's very interesting. It's the similar idea again. Peter and Jude tell us that certain angels sinned beyond measure and have been kept in prison by God in the spirit world chained until now. So verse 14 calls them the four. So the definite article there, the, means that we are talking about specific individuals and we have them in mind. Um, At the Euphrates, well, four powerful angels of the evil variety, of course, because they're chained. And uh, perhaps uh, Euphrates is there because it represents the uh, epicenter of power struggles in the ancient world. Now, the the Euphrates, I should say, Uh, flows through modern-day Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. The fall of man happened there. The river flowed out of the garden, paradise. We were ruined there. Everything you see around you, every tear that falls, happened there. All the miseries of mankind happened at the Euphrates. Here the first murder. Cain killed Abel there. The first martyr was slain. The Old Testament evil empire called Babylon is the Old Testament um, Nazi Germany of World War II days. That's what Babylon is to the Old Testament and that's where it springs, the Euphrates. Here the wicked tower of Babel was built in defiance after the flood. They said, try sending a flood now. And so we're going to build a city that goes up to the sky and it won't matter. Send your rainstorms. Babylon. And so these four angels, commentators say, probably had something to do with all of that from the beginning. And he chained them. But he said, you know what? There'll come a year, and in that year, there'll come a month. And in that month, there'll come a week. And in that week, there'll come a day. And in that day, God thinking, there'll come a moment. There'll come an hour. Not before, not an hour before, and not an hour after. But I got a place and a time where I'm going to unchain them. Now, why would you do a thing like that? Well, he's going to give them what they want, and that's what they want. He's going to use these four since they are so enthralled with demonic power. Now, um, the Lord 
is bringing these uh, angels to uh, power by releasing them. And it says that there in your text that uh, the toll is given a third of the earth's population. So a, th a fourth is already gone, a third now. That means seven twelfths of the population, 58% of the world has perished. And a third of it with this one trumpet blast. Now, how do those four angels get that job done? Well, scholars say it looks like, you can't say for sure, but it looks like this 200 million man army is a real one. And that they are the power behind stirring up that army. Now, there is, uh, China gets... Uh, nailed for this position, gets nominated, I should say, all the time. Because back in 1965 in Time Magazine, in the month of May, you can check this out, uh, China boasted of being able to man a 200 million man army. And so, one, and is the only nation that could man such an army. And so, and then in Revelation 16, we hear of a bold judgment that 200 million come from the east. And so, connecting the dots, if the trumpets and the bowls kind of collide, then you you could have something there. You know what? I'm just telling you what's what you're going to read out there. I think the important thing is is that this army is going to come forth. And it's going to do the destruction. Let's look at 17 and 19 through 19. There are war horses, imagery, lion, serpents. Oh, what does that say? This army's ferocious and has deadly warfare. Now, the, the thing that really kills people, John says, is what comes out of these horses, he calls them horses, the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur. That's what does a third of the population in. Uh, is is this what John is trying to talk about here, modern-day weaponry? Um, you can get the lights there. He, he says, you know, from their mouths comes fire. And then he says, well, wait, from their tails come fire. Well, the turret gun there turns. And so in the front, it looks like the horse, poor John, What's he going to call that? Oh, I saw a Sherman tank model for, you know. He says, I saw a horse, and I don't know. It just like was ferocious, and it looked like it had teeth, and, and it was spitting out fire. And then I saw like a, like a snake hanging out from the front, and from there came the power to hurt people. Yeah, if you were born 2,000 years ago, that's a pretty good job. And so that's just an idea. You know, you go online or you get a commentary book and you're going to read things like that. I, I, I don't think there's a problem in that as long as you're not just preaching a dogmatic way. This has got to be that because nobody knows. If it doesn't say it, we don't know what it is, except I don't think it's a bad thing to contemporize and wonder what could that be? And say, wow, could be. All right, let's move on. So John's point is the weaponry uh, that is responsible for the loss of life. 
finally, let's get to verses 20 and 21. That wasn't so bad, huh? No. (laughs) All right. Know this one more time. The Lord Jesus said, the day I come, it'll be perfectly calm day. Peace all around. People having parties, getting married. Not a clue. Judgment is anywhere in the air. It is therefore impossible for the church to be in the scene. By Jesus' own words. He said, the people went into the boat. Noah went into the boat. Until that very day, Jesus' words, no one had a clue what was coming because they were downtown going to the mall. They were working out. They were getting massages. They were getting their nails done. They were doing what people did back there. It's perfectly right to say all of those contemporary things because that's the spirit of the passage. The spirit of the passage is when I come, I'm going to be like a thief in the night. And then in that breath, he says, one will go, one will stay. Ah, So there are two kinds of comings. One for the church in a twinkle of an eye as a thief in the night. And then one where you come down and your your feet touch on the Mount of the Olives. The other thing is we go up, we're caught up. Those who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord are caught up. Well, the other, all the other passages on his coming is he comes down and him and he's touching the earth. He, he goes to the Mount of Olives, his feet touch down. So, so, oh, he comes first for us. He removes us from harm's way. We are not appointed to wrath. The day of God's wrath falls We are not there because we're not appointed to God's wrath. Revelation 3.10, I will spare the church from the hour that is coming upon the world. There, I feel better now. You know why? You should too, you know. And if you're still a post-tribulationist after all of this, I'm sure you're thinking, boy, I hope he's right. (laughs) All right, finally, verses 20 through 21. Um. So you'd think after six seals, four horsemen, six trumpets now, if 58% of the earth's population was, as of last night, 7,049,916,418, it means that by this trumpet, 4,088,951,000 522 people have died. Four billion. You would think the three billion who now are left would repent. And here's what your text says. The text says, well, there was a a general lack of repentance. First, Godward. Number one, they kept worshiping their own achievements, their own lives. That's the spirit of that first description. To worship the things of your hands means to worship yourself. And self-sufficiency reigns. That's number one. Number two, worshiping demons. Now, some people do that outright. In the two-thirds world, you know, if you've ever gone out there uh, outside of this country... 
you'll see the statues and you'll smell the incense. And, and, and Paul the apostle says, hey, that's not just going out in the air. When you offer something to a pagan deity, you're offering to demons. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. So it's just not a harmless cultural thing to burn incense and put some oranges there unto your gods. The Bible says demons are well pleased and receive it unto themselves as worship. So, but interestingly, you'll say, well, uh, we don't do that. The word is pharmakia for magic arts where we get the word pharmacy, which means taking drugs. So you can either go to the shaman, the fortune teller, the psychic, the voodoo guy, and do it that way with the little mushrooms and whatever it is they do, and they do. Or you can just smoke weed. Smoking weed equals pharmakia, witchcraft, because you're opening yourself to what they're opening themselves to. Same thing Bible says. People don't see that. And they continue smoking their weed right past seven trumpets, seven seals, and seven bowls. Right to the end. Can't let it go. Can't let it go. Not even with a scorpion sting of a devil-inhabited locust. That's a serious addiction. All right. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, the third one, worshiping stuff, money, possessions, gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. It just means worshiping stuff, jewelry, money, possessions, that whole thing. Uh, imagine that. And then uh, lack of repentance, man word. Last verse, verse 21. They continue to murder one another. Uh, now, you think they'd be really tired of that whole idea of death and dying, but they're not. And then secondly, it says they continue to sell and do drugs with one another, sorceries, magic arts, pharma, kaya, I already got to that. And then the, it's not surprisingly, uh, fornication. Fornication is, is a King James word. It comes from pornaia, from the Greek. Fornication just means our word for it, contemporary English, even though we do say that word, but nobody knows what it means, is sexual immorality. Porneia in the Greek is the general word for any sex outside husband and wife. Anything, all of it. That's the big label. And he says they still keep on having sex out of wedlock. And in the worst, most possible uh, ways of that. And then lastly, they keep taking what doesn't belong to them, stealing from one another. Now, of course, when we pause and reflect on this chapter, the horror of it all for us is that 
they didn't need to go through this. They didn't even need to be there during that time because Jesus suffered for them and gave them such warning. Now, we're going to go into communion time. Um, really, I want to I talk to you about this in, in these terms. There, there really was a cure to the scorpion sting there of the, the frenzied locust, and it was faith in Jesus. What an evangelism tool in those days when one person, imagine this, one person um, would call out to Jesus Christ and be saved and thereby sealed and protected from any more. So the bite of the sting of the demonization would be dealt with and stopped and they would heal and they would be protected and others would see that and they would proclaim, hey, I, I, I'm not getting stung and, and my stinging is being healed. And I did it because I called out in the name of Jesus to the name of Jesus. And so I can, I can imagine people will be inclined to believe uh, their testimony. And isn't this the gospel? This is the gospel. Listen, the whole stinging chastisement really reminds me of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, man. You're Mr. Joe religious. You've got all your rules and regulations. I'm telling you, going about it all the wrong way. You, you, you really need to be born again from above, a new birth, like the wind blowing around. It's got to get inside of you and make you alive. And then clearly Nicodemus is confused. And he says, you know, what do I have to be back in my mother's womb? Come on. And the Lord said, let me put it to you this way, to a nice learner Jew. He knew how to get through to Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, it's like this. It's not so hard. Do you remember Moses in the wilderness back in Numbers 21 and 22? The people, the Jews were complaining. They were talking smack about Moses, talking smack about God. And what were they saying? We don't have any bread. We're going to die. We don't have any water. We're going to die. We hate this manna, quote. We hate this food that he's given us. So the Lord, and they said, we want to die. So the Lord said, okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> so he sent in some fiery serpents that could sting them. Notice, to his people. And then they said, we give up. We have sinned, pray for us. Tell the Lord we're sorry, we're sorry, fix this. So the Lord says to Moses, Moses, take a, and you put this up now, take a bronze pole, which signifies always to the Jew judgment, a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and here's the cure. Tell them to look and they'll be cured. Now, that took faith because there were a lot of people that didn't look and died. What do you mean, look at I'm not looking. What, do you, what, what is that going to do? Just take a look at some, something on a cross or, or some serpent. I'm not doing it. Fine. And others looked. Look, uh, the scriptures say, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He's made it that easy. So, the Lord 
quotes this and says, just as Moses, talking of Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so too the Son of God must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him must have, may have eternal life. So do you get it, man? It's that easy. I'm not asking you to, you to climb back into your mother's womb. I'm not talking about good deeds and to be, you know, got to do this, got to do this. You, you just have to look, trust, believe. That's all you have to do because the work has been done. Jesus became the stinger. He became the curse. There's no more curse upon you if he paid for it all. And so that's what communion's all about. Communion that not only would have taken their sting away, but it started back in the garden. There was a serpent in the garden, wasn't there? And he bit your mama and he bit your father and it made you dead. And the only way out is what's represented here. The blood of he who became sin for us, God the Son, on the cross for our sins. Jesus now. The Lamb of God. The remedy for the tribulation saints, for the Old Testament saints, for Adam and Eve, and everyone born of Adam and Eve who carry the viper venom in us by birth. He says, anyone who drinks my blood, John chapter 6, will have eternal life. It's an, an analogy. It blew people away. A lot of people stopped following Jesus when he said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They didn't understand what he's saying. He's saying, I got the remedy. I got the meds. I'm the meds. <laughs> Get me on board is what he's saying. Get the meds on board. And this is the meds right here. This is how they're delivered. The blood and the body of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that will cure us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your wonderful love. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your heart. Though you, you are justly judging evil, you are also being merciful because you will that none perish. We thank you, Father, that you've been so kind to us. That most of us here, because we have Christ in our heart, are expecting better things. We thank you and we praise you and we celebrate this uh, communion time by remembering your love. In Christ's name, amen.